How's it going, everybody? Welcome to another edition of Beyond the Blind. I am your host, Chris Adams. If you're following along on iTunes or Podbean, however you get these podcasts, make sure you hit that subscribe button, leave us a review, some feedback, and uh, just helps these things grow. Make sure you share it and uh, tell your friends about us, too. That definitely is the the best way to help this thing keep growing. So uh, I really appreciate you guys who have done it, and uh, I hope more people do in the future. If you're not following along with us on social media, type in BTBN on Facebook, Instagram, connect with us there. That's the best way to keep up to date with all the new episodes and everything going on. Speaking of stuff going on, we just announced the uh, contest. We closed up the signups. We have 16 callers in. Um, I just, just got off the live video like two minutes ago calling the first matchup. So uh, we got the first eight callers set up for four head-to-heads and i'll announce the next eight callers uh next monday so it's looking like it's going to be a fun one man i uh i love this idea i've had so many messages so much feedback this week um about the contest and different ideas and different ways to make it better and make it more entertaining so i cannot wait to get it kicked off and uh i'm glad that we have it set it's episode number 51 man 50 launched today so you'll hear this thing two days later but it was an absolute record of a day just i mean almost doubled any other day that we've ever had so i'm really really excited i'm so thankful for you guys who tune in um you know the the people that listen to every single episode it means so much to me i get messages all day long from people who tell me they love it so uh it just makes all the difference in the world man makes me want to keep doing this thing because uh it definitely takes up a lot of time. Anyway, today I got another competition caller. He does some photography, does some blogging, does all sorts of different stuff in the uh, in the waterfowl world. So I'm excited to have him on. I've talked to him a bunch over the past couple of years, and uh, it's about time we got him on the podcast. So without any further ado, Mr. Lawrence Mock. Lawrence, how we doing today, buddy? Doing good. How about you? Oh, not too bad, man. It is the last day of my four-day weekend, and uh, I spent almost every day working on calls this weekend. I went to the lake two days in, in a row and went swimming for like eight hours this weekend, but uh, every other minute was spent messing with calls. So it's been it's been busy, and I do not want to go back tomorrow. Well, hopefully your shop is air-conditioned. It is not, and it is miserable. I, uh, I've i said it on a few podcasts in the past. If I don't get up at like 5 a.m., I do not work on calls because by 9 a.m., it's like 85 degrees in the shop. Oh, well, it's been miserable here, and it didn't rain for, I don't know, two or three weeks, and then we had hurricane whatever say isis or i say isis or whatever it is come up the coast and it's rained pretty much every day since then and so now it's a big hot muggy mess yeah dude that was wild did it i i haven't paid too much attention to the weather and uh i don't how bad did it get out there was it really nothing um i mean it was more 
So when it came through my neck of the woods, it was really windy. I mean, I think we had like 35, 40 mile an hour winds, which I guess is not too, too windy, but we had 75 mile an hour, 75 uh, mile an hour gusts. And as it skirted north and got closer to the Chesapeake Bay, um, the localized storms produced some tornadoes that tore up a bunch of places and we had some flooding and I know like uh, John Walls up there in Delaware, I'm not sure what river he lives on, but I know that like his back, his parents' backyard flooded and all that stuff. So it was more or less, I don't think it was the wind per se that got everybody, it was the large copious amounts of rain we had. You know, three weeks ago you couldn't have bought rain, but now you can't pay for it to stop. Yeah, man, it was uh, it was super dry here for the longest time too, and it, I think all that kicked up, you know, weather all the way over here in the in the Midwest because we had a big, big temperature drop last week. Where you know, in the middle of or I guess at the beginning of August, it was like highs in the freaking low 80s, which you know today I think it was like 98, which is normal for August, but it was very, very weird. I didn't have to mow for three weeks, and you know, it's uh it finally grew again it rained for a week straight yeah it's um they're saying it's supposed to be we're supposed to have a really bad hurricane season on the east coast this year which um you know really doesn't do it can either help or hurt uh hunting season so depending on where you are and how you hunt so you know it's something to look out for for sure what uh okay so you're on are you on eastern shore as well i'm not on the eastern shore i'm right smack in the middle of virginia well depending on who you talk to i'm right literally just out of richmond virginia okay i used to live in a va beach man so i know where you're at oh yeah okay cool yeah so just you two hours on the road from me yeah man we used to go up through there all the time um richmond is a super super cool city man it's very unique for uh, that area of the country. Where, where the heck are you hunting around there? So, I'm very fortunate. Um, we've got some uh, family farms that we've had in our family for years. And uh, it's about 45 minutes uh, east of me is where I do most of my waterfowl hunting. And then I've hooked up with people over the years. I've got some places uh, south and a couple places west um, that I get to hunt as well. So, yeah, nowhere really in Richmond, although the resident goose population, if you could find a place, would be killer. Yeah, they did. Uh, guys, go ahead. I actually know there are guys that hunt just outside of Henrico County, which is literally just outside of Richmond. And uh, it's really weird. The western part of Henrico County, as soon as you get out of Henrico County, it's all zoned like agricultural, and it's a pretty rural type suburby kind of area and there's some small farmers that have just kept their land like smack dab in the middle of these subdivisions and uh september juicy that rolls around there's some guys who run absolutely kill shopping mall geese off these little farms they have a blast yeah it's have you ever uh, hunted around wichita area have you ever been out this way no i have not it's on the list to get out and hunt okay Kansas, Missouri. I've only been to well. You're welcome anytime here in Missouri. You want? I don't know that I'm gonna have anything better than out there. But uh, <laughs> don't threaten me with a good time. 
I uh, I hunted Wichita one year, and it is the absolute strangest city I have ever hunted in my life. It, you know, it's a big, spread out, huge area with a lot of like little uh, little cities around it. You know, kind of like any other freaking big city where you have nine small cities around it that all kind of make up the metro area. They have a, a policy that as long as your family has continuously farmed an area, you can be le- uh, zoned as like out of city limits, but be like smack dab in the dead middle of the si- uh, of the city. So we went hunting out there one time, and we were hunting this winter wheat field in between like a twenty story freaking bank, and on the other side was like a like a shopping center. Like it was super super weird, and there was just thousands of birds freaking using this field and you know you could have i'm like i can't believe i'm hunting sitting here next to a skyscraper well i guess not a skyscraper but 20-story buildings pretty damn tall it was just very very weird like uh we hunted this hundred acre uh, winter wheat field on a different part of the city and there was this big huge developed neighborhood on one side and then you know gas station and stuff on the right side and it was just in the middle of town it was a very very weird feeling for hunting yeah, you know, but that's resident goose season. It's, I mean, that's uh, those are the places you need to be hunting if you're trying to actually serve the purpose of hunting resident geese, right? So. Bro, this was January. The Wichita winters. Oh, wow. Yeah, Wichita, I don't know what they do now. This was five, six years ago. I think they're, they were up to like 200,000 birds inside city limits. Like, yeah, it's a really, really weird area, and I don't know it well enough to speak facts, but every single field you, like, drove by, there would just be, like, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, you know, lesser snows just all over the place. It was very weird. That's pretty cool. We have, I mean, so we have that early September goose season here, and then and our limit is, uh, it's 10 geese a day per person and then our regular gun season comes in and we've got the 30 day season now with one bird per person and then it starts and stops so we have some splits in there and then after duck season you have west of interstate 95 you've got like another resident season that runs almost to the end of february in certain places and does the uh, resident season like is it go up to big numbers again or is it just at one bird still no i think it um i think it may go up to like three birds per person depending on where you are so you've got virginia like if you look at it's kind of like a little lopsided triangle Mm -hmm. 95 and you know because you live over here you know runs from the very northern tip all the way straight down through richmond to north carolina and while we're the whole state's considered part of the Atlantic Flyway mm-hmm. um, I guess they consider east of Interstate 95 more of like the natural migration pattern and everything west of 95 is kind of like eh, I guess they assume they're lost east or something but <laughs> you know I hunted that late goose season one time with a kid a young boy he asked me to come home with him and I was pretty excited because he's kind of like in one of those areas you were talking about like a, a rural area between a bunch of like cities mm-hmm. and we shot our geese and he he doubled up on a group that came in and 
went out and picked it up. He goes, man, it's broke banded. And I was like, sweet. And he goes, yeah, it's probably banded at Walmart. He goes and picks up the second bird. He goes, this one's banded too. And I said, yeah, they're probably definitely both banded at Walmart. <laughs> he called them in and they're, they're both banded up near Ontario. Whoa, that's super cool. Yeah, and they were banded a year apart in the same town. That's freaking cool, man. That I've so, only been fortunate enough to have one band to call in. It's you know I've been on two or three banded hunts a year ever since I've freaking been hunting. But we always do the draw or whatever. So I shot the one band that I had, called it in on a blue wing teal. He had made it thirteen hundred miles in two weeks since being banded, <laughs> and then my lanyard was stolen out of my jeep the night before oh, a hunt sucks. like so i had my band for like a whopping three or four weeks and i was like well okay if i ever get another one i will never ever keep it on my lanyard i just give them away now i don't like anybody else want in the draw whatever man i hope whoever stole your lanyard chips fall and chips their teeth that's horrible <laughs> right it's it's ridiculous man they uh <sighs> with my jeep i always left the doors unlocked unlocked because i had a soft top i would rather right. somebody open my door and take whatever's in there versus uh cut my windows and make me have to buy a new 300 window <laughs> it's just right. you know part of the deal and i was being dumb one day and got back late and left my uh blind bag in there or no i think it was in my jacket and i left my jacket sitting in my passenger seat and somebody lifted the jacket and just happened to have my lanyard in it i love hearing band stories though i mean to think about how far those birds go from point A to point B or like where they kind of like especially when you're killing it like was banded in an area just so far away from your flyaway you're just kind of like man I wish like I knew why he was over here and where he stopped along the way so I, I have a theory though about some of our birds it's um like so you got the Mississippi River mm-hmm and off the Mississippi River, you have the Ohio River, and that flows sort of east, and the New River hooks, comes out of the Ohio River, which comes through West Virginia, and down through Virginia. And something that I've noticed around here is, like, Ryan, we don't, you know, we don't have snow geese. But more and more showing up, and what's really weird about it is that more and more of these snow geese were getting killed on the western side of the state. Now, they have snow geese on the eastern shore, but I don't know. I mean, there's some guys that hunt them pretty hard, I guess, but, I mean, it's an expensive drive to get through all the tolls and long day and stuff. But in the main, main part of Virginia, people started killing more and more snow geese, and it was in the western part of the state, which is kind of, like, odd considering, you know, the snow goose population from the from Maryland's eastern shore down to Virginia's eastern shore. So, I have a theory that you know a big front comes down through the Mississippi, pushing east, and bumps these birds. Well, you know they use rivers and stuff as like a map. Why wouldn't they get confused and just follow those rivers all the way into Virginia? That's just my kooky theory, though. No, you know, I there's definitely because you know you look at Missouri in general. You look at the Missouri River, you know, up in Montana, and then you got the Mississippi River, you know, starting at the top of the freaking country, coming from the Great Lakes or uh, Minnesota, wherever the heck the, the mouth of the Mississippi is. And birds will follow that sucker, and you'll have, you know, like, uh, 
Kansas City, St. Louis, you know, the Platte River, all that stuff that feeds into it, those birds all file down those suckers for the uh, Mississippi Flyway, and they'll pick up a lot of central birds that come through there. And uh, that's why Arkansas is the way that it is, because those rivers meet and flow right into Arkansas, and, you know, it becomes the delta. So they definitely use that sucker as a map because it stays like open water. Um, it, right. I, what's the... From what I remember driving through Virginia, man, it's been almost a decade. The western part of Virginia is all pretty mountainy, like West Virginia, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, like, you get 45 minutes to an hour west of Richmond, and you're at, they call, uh, like, the foothills, right? So you're getting into Charlottesville and stuff, and then you really start to get into the, that's kind of like the start, the eastern side of the Blue Ridge Mountains. Mm-hmm. And then it pretty much mountain from Charlottesville West so and and believe it or not man I've talked to some guys like you wouldn't think that that would be like you know a heavily duck hunted area and it's not but you wouldn't think there'd be a lot of birds there and I talked to some guys who hunt up there in the mountains and they they find like these pockets of birds man and they're really successful it's kind of like an untapped resource and they're pretty quiet about it I mean I just let the cat out the bag but I didn't say where they were but you know. <laughs> right. Well, good luck finding it way up there in the mountains. You know? <laughs> For yeah, people who yeah, don't know that yeah. that neck of the country, it's pretty freaking rough terrain. Um, yeah. Sure. I, I wonder if it's, you know, I've hunted Colorado before, and Colorado was very weird. My buddy would always send me pictures of just loads and loads and loads of birds. I mean, like 5,000 freaking mallards on this pocket of water. And I'm like, dude, you have, you guys have so many freaking birds out there. It's nuts. And he was like, well, it's not that we have so many birds. It's that we don't have water everywhere. Like here in Missouri, you know, every single field you look at has got a couple of cattle ponds on it. A couple of big retaining lakes and stuff like that. Where Colorado doesn't have that. He's like, I only have like four or five water holes within like 30, you know, like 30 mile drive that, uh, I can even hunt so everywhere that there is water is absolutely loaded so i imagine with the mountains and stuff like that if you find that body of water i mean there's just kind of where they all congregate to yeah and, and kind of like i was saying how hurricane season could like hurt or help us yeah you know we if we have a really really wet fall and everything is just full of water i mean those ducks just like you said they, they have they can go anywhere they want I mean you shoot them on one little body of water they're just gonna fly a mile over to the body of water they're not getting shot on and it's spread out but I would imagine yeah up there in the mountains there isn't a lot of water like we have where I am so it makes sense yeah it's it's super interesting you were talking about guys saying they were freaking hunting snows over there and to me coming from Missouri and you know Kansas is where we normally hunt snows at where everything is cornfields and flat or you know kind of rolling hills it's very like hard for me to picture my mind of where the heck you would hunt a snow in western virginia in the in the mountains and timber and stuff i don't think and see that's the thing i don't think what it is is when i first started hearing about it i started kind of like talking to guys because i thought they were like full of shit i was like yeah dude you're shooting like farm raised geese or something and you're just you're from the mountains you have no idea what you're talking about but Turns out, I mean, for my job, I've, I've gone out before, and you'll see a flock of Canada's, and you'll see, you know, six-pack of snows with them, and you're like, huh. Or 
syrups and, you know, two gluten's with them, and you're like, what? what's the deal? And it's just been more and more consistent, but um, most of these guys aren't really, like, even trying to set up on them. They're just, you know, they're riding around doing their homework, and, of course, they see a field with snows mixed in with the Canada's, and that's where they're going to go hunt, because it's like a, you know, it's a trophy for them, especially considering the fact that nobody around them's killing any of them. No, yeah. Yeah, definitely, man. It's, do you guys get uh, over there on the Atlantic? Do you get the greater snows? Yeah, as far as I know, I'm pretty sure. Like, I don't really hunt them that much because I don't really. There's nobody really around me that holds them. But um, talking to Teddy Hoover and like his buddy Mick O'Donnell and Bobby Hyman and those guys that uh, you know mess around with them, so I'm pretty sure they're all graders. Hmm. Yeah, I, I've never seen a, a grader over here. We. You know, we just have the uh, big pass through of all the freaking lesser snows, and that's what everybody's, uh, you know, big on uh, in Arkansas and up around Mound and stuff like that. So that'd be interesting for sure. Do you guys, you guys ever get any like swans and stuff, or is Virginia even one of the oh, states you can mess no. with them? No, we can mess with them. We get plenty of them. Yeah, it's a lottery system. So, you know, North Carolina, like the Lake Madam Skeeter, is really known for the swan hunting and. I like Currituck Sound and all that stuff, but Virginia actually has a lottery where they issue um, six hundred. I think it's six hundred like tags per year, so you can kill. You put in for your like almost like a blind draw. You put in for it, they you know raffle it off, I guess, and you get picked. You can kill one. Um, and again, that's only east of ninety five. That's where that you know I don't know why you couldn't kill one west of ninety five. But the law says it's got to be east of 95. But, um, yeah, we get them. They're one of my favorite birds to hunt if I'm lucky enough to get a permit. Are you uh, are you hunting them in, like, a field setup, or are you hunting them over, like, water? Both. Both? Both. Nice. Is it yeah. one per year if you get a tag, or can you get multiple? It is. It is definitely one per year. Gotcha. Gotcha. But, I, you know, if somebody were to ask me if I like hunting them over dry fields or water, it's a really hard question to answer because I always tell people it's like you know when you shoot a swan it's like the most violent folding of a bird ever I mean it's just it's like somebody when you hunt them over I like hunting over water because they come in and they hit the water it literally sounds like somebody pushing a body out of a plane when they hit and it's just <laughs> it's a big splash it's just very very dramatic and awesome and then on the flip side of that, when you're hunting them a field, hunting them in a field, you get them, you know, back flapping at 15, 20 yards, birds like that. I mean, and you shoot them and they hit the ground, you can feel it in your layout line. It's uh, it's pretty epic, especially if you get a like if you get a big group of guys to come in, like everybody's got a permit, and you get a big group to come in and you shoot two or three out of my flock. It's just pretty awesome to watch them work and then fall out the sky like that heck yeah are they pretty are they hardy are you shooting like you know bb on them or are you yeah I, I shoot bbs at them so it's really weird people are like well how could you miss a swan well you know when you're aiming at a bird you're leading it based on its head right so right. you can think about how long the neck is and you've got something probably about the size of a softball as a head that you're aiming at <laughs> and then you know two feet behind its body so you shoot over under that head you're missing essentially but if you look at them I've breasted out plenty of them there's actually in my opinion 
and I know plenty of other probably agree, there's less meat on a swan, on a tundra swan, than there is on a Canada goose. Really? They're, yeah, they're all chest cavity and all feathers, just thick, hearty feathers. I wonder if that's because they're way the heck up there. I, I don't know, but they, uh, and they are, I would say they're pretty tough birds. You know, I've seen them square off with dogs, and, you know, I've made the mistake of picking up a cripple and had him swing that wing straight to the side of my head, and it feel like somebody hitting you with a pipe or something. Man, people, I mean, it's, people really underestimate right? how freaking sucky that can be. Like, if you, even with, like, a honker, you know, you get a big old fat honker, and uh, they start beating you with those wings, dude. That can freaking hurt real bad. I've had a bruised arm before for a couple days. Oh, yeah. We had um, really bad ice a couple winters ago. And I was I sent the dog. I had to get out in the boat and went out and, and picked up a crippled goose. And with the ice and the dog, I grabbed the goose by its neck. It's crippled. I grabbed the dog. I'm trying to get the dog in the boat. And as I'm standing up, you know, trying to get it squared away and get my face away from the dog before she slings, you know, frozen water and mud on my face. This goose starts taking its wings and slam. It's like I was just wrong place, wrong time. It's slamming them like in the side of my face. It felt like somebody taking two brooms and smacking it in the face. It was horrible. <laughs> like you son of a gun, freaking. That oh, just, yeah. It's just freaking too funny, man. That's like um. Those crazy freaking sand hills. Have you ever hunted sand hills before? No, but that's on the bucket list too. Man, okay, so sure. when we were in Colorado, we didn't have like a a blind setup or any decoys or anything crazy like that. They were just they were all hanging out around this uh, water hole that we'd been hunting ducks on, and my buddy had been watching them, you know, for a couple of weeks, and they'd just been hitting this winter wheat field up above this water hole, and. Uh, you know, we shot all of our ducks, and we're like, dude, I bet we could wait until those sw- those uh, cranes come back, and, you know, we could freaking smash some cranes. And uh, we, you know, obviously waited, and of course we just, you know, pass shot them, because we're not freaking crane hunters or anything like that. It was just kind of a, hey, we're here, this is kind of a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, why the heck not? And, uh, dude, those things... You see all the videos and pictures of those things like fighting dogs and stuff like that and people hitting them with the butts of their guns and craziness. So I was expecting them to be like this crazy tough bird and have to worry about, you know, dispatching a cripple before he wanted to kung fu fight me. They get up in that crazy stance. And, uh, dude, when they're flying, they to me they were super, super fragile. Like it took one shot and the bird just like crippled up and died. I was like, I didn't even think I hit him hard. I want to say a couple of years ago, I heard Scott Trinan and Field Hudnall were at Rogers, and they were arguing over which bird was more fragile, a snow goose or a sandhill crane. And I want to say Scott was arguing the point to the sandhill crane that he was actually on the ground making things like, well, their goofy legs are so fragile, it's all, it's all just nothing there, you shoot them 50 yards away and they fall, but I've heard that before, and it's, uh, it's funny you say that, because then you, you, I mean, guys buy those rec specs for their dogs. Oh, yeah. You know? I, I don't know, if I've been on a sandhill crane hunt in a dry field, I believe I've just leave my dog in the truck. 
Yeah, yeah, it's definitely... I wouldn't bring a dog out, and I wouldn't get anywhere freaking near it until it was dead. <laughs> you know, that's just me maybe being a big old wuss. But I have to 100% cranes are more fragile than snows, and that's not saying anything against, you know, Field or anybody else that thinks differently, but I've seen snows take multiple shots and freaking fly away, you know. Uh, I, I don't know, I just have... I've done a lot... It might not have been field, but I know was, I just remember laughing hysterically because somebody was doing their impersonation of a Santo crane, and I just thought it was absolutely hilarious. <laughs> Dude, those things are the noisiest, most ear like. You think an e collar with snows is bad, and you'll hear that sucker for days and days. Sitting underneath, waiting for these cranes to fly out, like it's just. I don't know if you've ever listened to it or like heard a call, but they are the most annoying freaking sound. And, uh, I don't know, it's very, very distinct. Yeah, they kind of sound like, uh, almost like trumpeter swans, right? Don't y'all have those out there? Dude, we don't have very many swans out here. We'll get, you know, the few at the zoo or whatever, but we don't, uh, get very many swans. The birds that we get out here, mallards, gadwall, green-winged teal. (laughs) We have our, uh, our resident honkers, but you're looking at those three ducks and 90% chance you're shooting a mallard. Well, I mean, I'll take that any day. <laughs> right? I'll take them if I yeah. can find them. Um, like we were talking about the river system earlier, if you look at a map of Missouri, you will see the Mississippi running down the eastern portion of Missouri, and you will see the Missouri River starting in the northwest corner and cutting the state in half, connecting with the Mississippi. I live at the southwest corner, so it's like two highways taking birds around us. So, once again, it's kind of like you. The birds are either drunk or lost when they get here. Yeah. It, yeah. I completely understand. <laughs> and it was, it was crazy about, like, here in Virginia is that, like, you know, I grew up hunting an area, and, you know, we kill uh, mallards, black ducks, teal, pintail, gadwall, widgeon, which is really cool. And I always thought pintails were... I mean, I thought everybody shot pintails in Virginia. I've talked to guys that hunt, like, you know, five, six miles downriver from me who've never seen a pintail in their marsh. And I'm like, I don't, what do you mean? He's like, I've never shot one. I've been hunting for, you know, 30 years, never never shot one. I've seen a couple, but I've never shot them. I'm going, dude, we're, we're just, like, right in the river. And we get covered up with them to the point because I limit you know, changes back and forth on those a lot too. It's like sometimes that's all you see. I'm like, how are you not seeing these birds? Have I don't know. Have you not heard my pintail story? Uh-uh. Uh okay, so the other people who have listened to the other podcast I'm sure have heard it. Let's see how consistent I can be with the details of my story. I'm sure I'll get called out, I'm sure. But uh that is my favorite duck. I have one tattooed on the back of my tricep. And uh, I've always wanted one to put on the wall. So, like, ever since I started hunting and saw a picture of one, I was like, yep, that's what I want. My buddy's like, they're super rare around here. I was like, okay, but that's what I want. So, I've had a few different opportunities, and I've crippled a couple and lost them way off in the freaking brush, like 400, 300, 400 yards away, and sent dogs and could never find them. And, just a huge big pain in the butt losing them so one year we're out at you know the lake and uh i'm hunting with a couple of my buddies 
And the year before, we had one work our little farm pond. I mean, just a big old bull sprig. And he came in with a, a pair of mallards. Well, my buddy, it's his property. He's leading the hunt. He's calling. And he's circling these mallards. And I'm watching this pintail doing the, you know, the pintail freaking shuffle where he just comes diving in, doing different crap. And, you know, pretty much just screwing everybody else, you know, the mallards up. So my buddy's 100% focused on these freaking mallards, working them up, working them up. I could have shot this pentel probably three or four times. He ends up bailing out. The mallards bail out. And I look over at my buddy. I was like, dude, why did you not call the shot on the pentel? He's like, what pentel? I was like, there was a freaking pentel circling around. He's like, well, you should have just shot it. I was like, I'm not going to jump up and quick shoot, you know, when we're working other birds. And he's like, I would have. <laughs> I was like, okay, roger that. So the next year we get out to the lake. And we're set up, and uh, we have a, a single bull come just hauling down, big old fat sprig, and my buddy goes, hey, Chris, there's another pintail. And I was like, yep, yep, I'm aware. And he starts calling at, then all of a sudden I just stand up, boom, shoot him. Folds up, dead on the water, you know, 15, 20 yards away from me. And uh, he's like, oh, I guess you weren't going to wait for me to screw up or, you know, jump shoot that thing for you. And I was like, no, heck yeah. And he's like, well, before you go get it, there's another group of birds coming in. Let's see if we can work these mallards real quick. So we sat there. I'm not paying attention. I'm looking at my phone. I'm texting people. Hell yes, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm looking up mount positions. You know, I've, I've already won the Super Bowl in my mind. <laughs> so Yeah, he was on the wall. He's, he's on the wall. Mind you, he's sitting on the water while they're working these other mallards. They end up flaring off, and my buddy goes, hey, Chris, look at this. I was like, what? And he's like, you see that eagle right there? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, he circled that thing like three times. The freaking bird is drifting out away from me. And it's like, if I would have been paying attention, I would have just went up and got him. Screw the other birds, you know, I'm going to bust it. But uh, I wasn't. So this eagle swoops down, picks up the pintail, flies over to the other side of the freaking lake, you know, three or four hundred yards across the bank. And eat some right in front of me. Yeah. And my buddy's like, dude, I feel bad for you. Uh, like, I'm not going to even make fun of you. I'm not going to laugh at you. I feel bad. And I was like, what else can I do, man? So now anytime I see a pintail, I'm like, get the hell out of here. The, uh, the eagles where I hunt um, are notorious for doing stuff like that. My brother's first straight canvas back he ever shot, an eagle swooped down on a tree and picked it up. Damn. <laughs> out of the water he's like what do I do I'm like I don't know I mean definitely don't want to shoot it I mean that's for sure yeah no joke I don't even want to shoot near it because if it has a no. heart attack and dies I'm going to freaking get in trouble yeah hunt's over <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. not good yeah that uh man so like I said anytime I see a pinto Especially if there's mallards working, I want them to get the hell out of there because they're going to screw up a freaking pen or a mallard hunt real quick. Yeah, well, you're more than welcome to come hunt with us if you want to kill your great pintail. Man, I was talking to my buddy. He still lives in Virginia Beach. I need to get back out that way really bad. It's been a long time since I've been out there. And uh, there's so many different people that I need to see and come hunt with and, you know, drink beer with and have a good time. So I definitely want to get back out that way. Well, the time to come is usually about the second week of January is when they really start showing up. Nice. Nice, man. It's usually when they 
the big mature birds are here. How long does your guys' season go till? Uh, January thirty first. Oh, okay. So you guys are another one of those late groups. Yeah, we we pretty much mirror the uh, Arkansas season. The splits are sometimes a little different. Virginia still Sunday hunting for us is still fairly new relative to everybody else has had it. Like I don't want to say it's like three or four years old or something like that now, and so with the regulation of how many days you hunt waterfowl and our splits and when they start um Virginia's still working on the splits as far as how long they're going to be and when they're going to be and like typically our season would go out on the last Saturday in January and this year they had it go out on the last day of January which was a Wednesday which you know was fine but they're still trying to get those timelines right you got a whole group of guys that hunt that are really big we have like an early October season it comes in like on we'll say like a Thursday or Friday and goes out on like a Monday in October and depending on where you are I mean those guys are shooting like bag limits like we would shoot in January they're just different parts of the state and so they're all about no we want the season to come in October and run its course yeah, you know, we don't care about January. We're not holding birds in January. Whereas I'm going, I'd rather it, you know, start in December and run to the end of January. But yeah, that's exactly where I am, man. Um, we get a big push of birds usually the first week in November, and the top half of our state is open. The top two thirds, they, you know, it's essentially cut it like. Uh, uh, I guess it really is two thirds. It doesn't matter. But um, and then we start down here at uh, Thanksgiving, so I can really start hunting in the first week of November if I want to drive like an hour and a half north, which of course we always do. But that's the only time you know you have that first push of birds, and then they get real stale, and then we don't get birds again until freaking late December, like you know start getting those real big cold fronts and pushes in. So it's like the whole rest of November, I don't even care about. I'm like, you guys can close it back up because this is pointless. Leave honker season open for us. And uh, that's something they've done right finally is, you know, kind of giving us an extra two weeks during resident. It used to just be like 10 days for residential honkers. I think they added an extra six or seven. I haven't looked at this year's dates just because everything else going on. But uh, they've added like three and a half weeks total of honker hunting for us both regular season and early season which is like i said my bread and butter so i'm super stoked about it but i don't get excited for ducks until about december 15th well our um our bag limits are i mean like so right now we've got the during the regular general firearms i call it like the migratory season when we're getting actual birds moving around um, you know, it's one goose a day for a 30-day season, and now we can only kill two mallards per person. But we can kill two black ducks, too, or, you know, two pintails. I think it's still two. It might just be one again. I don't know. I think but, pintails are one across the board, maybe even on the West yeah. Coast. Yeah, I know it. I, can't, I think it changed last year. Yeah, I mean, I know it was one, and then it went back to two, and then it, I think it's back to one. But our black duck limit went from one to two, 
and we kill two canvas backs. And that's kind of cool. Like where I hunt, you know, you have the potential of killing a six bird bag limit and killing, you know, you can, I mean, literally kill six different species of ducks. Yeah, which, see, that's super cool. Which man. is nice. Yeah, like I said, here you're going to shoot maybe two types of ducks, three if you're lucky. And it's going to be the three that I said. You might, if you want to go to the big lakes, you can, you know, catch some divers and stuff like that. And yeah. uh, that's not ever where we're hunting at. We like to stay on uh, private land if we can. So, you know, mainly it's mallards, man. Yeah, well, nothing wrong with that. <laughs> you got them. <laughs> exactly. So, tell me about uh, Mudflat, man. You, you, It was a blog that you were doing and some photography stuff. Tell me a little bit more about it. Yeah, so, like, I'm always interested in, like, trying to, like, I guess, hang on to the season as long as possible. That's why, I, you know, train dogs and I do the competitive duck calling thing. And I started it, and... Um, was really enjoying it. I mean, I really enjoyed it. It gave me access to talk to people um, about the things that I really want to know about. And it turns out, I mean, other people, I guess, want to know about them too. The problem is, is that life happens. My daughter was getting older, and so when I had free time, I was like, well, I kind of got to balance this out. So I like to hunt, I like to fish, and I got to work and I love my daughter. So it's kind of like, all right, I need to, basically my daughter is my focus with my free time. So I just didn't really have the time to do it. I'd love to start doing it again. I mean, I really enjoyed it, but I haven't been able to do anything with it. But yeah, I started, um, you know, taking pictures. I really enjoyed that. I, I love to train dogs and I go to a lot of hunt tests and field trials and stuff. And um, when I was running them uh, with my dog, it was like, you know, you got downtime between series. So I was like, you know, I love photographs of dogs in action. I mean, in their element. You can really capture the emotion of a dog and the things they're doing and the focus and stuff. So that's kind of like, you know, that's how I kind of got into photography and stuff. And I'd like to get that back up and going too. And um, there's just, I feel like as a hunter, there's so many things that like you see when you're out there like birds doing crazy things or unique species of birds or deer, turkey and all that good stuff. And I mean, there's a lot of times, there's a lot of hunts where they're epic hunts, but I'm almost like, man, you know, to try and explain this to somebody would be really difficult. If you can just show a picture and there's a lot of hunts that I wish I'd brought a camera instead of a gun because some of the cool things you see. And I just feel like there's a lot of people that, don't really get to see that kind of stuff and I don't know there's some amazing uh, outdoor wildlife photographers out there that really like not to sound too like sentimental but they really like capture like the essence of what what's going on mm-hmm. you know I never once thought I'd say man you can really feel the emotion and the excitement in that picture but I mean there's some really cool pictures out there some badass things that you know if there wasn't a picture of it you might find it hard to believe it happening you know, I, so I, I I take a camera with me all the time, but I don't always need to take pictures. I so. agree, man. It takes a very, very special eye to get that emotion. That's where, you know, because I feel like for a lot of different things, not just in the waterfowl world, but, uh, you know, a lot of different avenues. Anytime somebody gets a DSLR, you know, they're, they're an instant photographer for a while, and it... <sighs> 
it's that level of learning of how to actually capture an image versus just going out there and hitting the button a few times. And I think oh, it, I think it's, it's a yeah, man, it's a huge learning curve, and you can tell when somebody figures it out, and sometimes people don't ever figure it out. Yeah, it's one of those things. Like I, I haven't. Um, I always take my camera places when I go, and I take some. I mean, I don't know how many memory parts I have, but, you know, because you take two, three, four hundred pictures or something, and you'll get one that you really like, and it's like. But you got it's time consuming. You got to sit there and go through every single one of them and look at them and go, "Well, I kind of no, this is off, that's off." But then you find that one and you're really pumped about it. Then you've got to like clean it up. You know, I don't want to say Photoshop it because that's makes it sound like you're altering the whole picture, but cleaning it up, you know, making sure it's exposed right and all that good stuff, and just making it pop and look good. And then when you do, you know, it's just it tells a story. You can just look at it and just sometimes you see. Guys excited, guys pissed off, dogs tired, dogs, you know, anxious. It's, I mean, I think it's really cool when there's some amazing guys out there that, that do it way leaps and bounds ahead of where I'd like to be. But I'm kind of at that learning phase now where, you know, especially with the pandemic and everything, I feel like written word is kind of coming back, but there's YouTube and um, there's so many different avenues for people to get their content that I was just kind of like, all right, I'm either all in or I'm all out. And I didn't want to halfway do something. So I kind of put it on hold. Um, I still take pictures, you know, and I still get on, uh, like Adobe Photoshop messing with stuff. I just haven't had the time to really sit down and, and put myself all back in it again. Yeah, man. I, I can totally understand that. Like, uh, you know, I had a talk with uh, Josh, the podcast that I released today, and we were talking about priorities and stuff like that. And it sounds like you have your your priorities in line and what's most important to you. So naturally, that's what you have to put your time to. Um, it does, man. Culling through all those pictures and adjusting and, you know, set up and raw and stuff like that. It just, it takes up a lot of time. And it's something that I love and have a big, big passion for, but my plate is too full <laughs> and I know that I have a very addictive personality with that type of stuff so it's like I can't even entertain jumping into it because I don't have any free time as it is now <laughs> well that yeah and that and um like contest calling and everything like that I mean it all costs money too and it's like I love contest calling and it's kind of like well you know it's not cheap to fly to Arkansas Thanksgiving weekend it's not cheap to fly anywhere that weekend so you kind of also gotta like pick your battles and budget like that too as well so yeah there's so many different things pulling in so many different directions man it uh it can be challenging to balance it all for sure I you know you think written word is starting to slow down but I I think blog posts, man, are going to make a comeback. If you look, it's one of the best ways to, uh, you know, hit get that hit counter higher. I think more people read than uh, what you would expect. Well, I, actually, I tend to agree with you there. I mean, I kind of feel like, also, I feel like yeah, written word versus hearing somebody else say it, I mean... I don't know how to explain it, but I believe something I read more than something I would hear. Like, there's so, 
there's a lot of really good content out there and there's also a lot of really uh, lackluster content mm-hmm. like there's some bad advice floating around out there and there's some and it, it's just it kills me when I see like videos pop up YouTube videos and I look at them and I go man that guy's got 50,000 views it's only been up for 24 hours and I, I mean I'm looking at it going huh and then I watch the video and I go Really? Yep. I'm like, you, you, like I would love to see the analytics on it to see what the demographic of like age group is watching that video. And I bet it's probably a lot younger people that are getting steered the wrong direction or getting bad advice, and they're missing a lot. It's kind of like training a dog, right? So you can't skip steps when you're training a dog. You got to go from point A to point B. Otherwise, you have holes in your training. When you're teaching people out waterfowl hunting, you need to teach them, you know, point A to point B. If you just go, if you skip a step, if you teach somebody to waterfowl hunt and not use a duck call or a goose call, they'll never be able to hunt by themselves. There's a hole in their training. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, man, I agree. So, I'd, I'd rather read something, you know, where I could go back to it over and over again, look at it, and, you know, fact check it, I guess, if I had to, but then watch a really crappy YouTube video. Man, I can tell you that the written aspect of it, like for, I've been doing it here the last couple of weeks. I've been taking like little quotes and teasers out of the podcast and I've been yeah, making them. Oh, that's cool. Dude, yeah, people have been going crazy over those. I've gotten way more messages about those than individual podcasts just for the little teasers. Like they're getting like, kinda, go ahead. I kind of feel like you got Dan Getz wrong though. It probably should have said the highlight of my calling career was when I won the Rogers World two-man meat calling competition with Lawrence Mock. Without <laughs> him, I wouldn't be where I am today. <laughs> and I feel like you maybe misquoted that a little bit, but it That's, is what it is. It's or, definitely possible, man. Yeah, or Corey's could have said, I'm really glad Dan and Lawrence won that contest. If they hadn't, then me and Zach would not have known what to do or Mike Benjamin and Sean would not have known what to do. You know, like, <laughs> we're the standard that others were measured by. <laughs> That's too funny, man. I I just love giving them shit. I, I, you know. Dude, those were both two extremely fun podcasts to do with those two. Oh, and those guys are my buddies, man. I love those guys to death. You know, it's... it's Contest calling, it's like, I, I couldn't imagine, like, what, I, I mean, I feel like I talk to some of those guys more than I talk to my own family, so. <laughs> well, I think that's part of the story that people miss out of the contest calling, and even some of the call-making world, is the, the friendships and the personalities, man. That's why I like this medium so much, of having these little hour-long sit-downs with guys and uh, letting them tell their own story. I've told it on uh, you know a few podcasts here recently. When I was doing the live stream stuff and uh, doing kind of the little episodic stuff about contest calling, where I made a big mistake with that was thinking people wanted to hear my opinion. <laughs> thinking people actually listened to my opinion. That, or I guess thinking people didn't listen to my opinion. Because I was giving it instead of giving the guys that were participating the voice. And uh, 
you know, that was kind of why I really wanted to come back and do it in a podcast style so I could give you guys the voice to tell your own story versus me trying to disseminate information and put it out there without getting people mad. Well, I, and I think, uh, you know, what a lot of people, it's weird, you know, you, you've got people that get on Facebook and all these social media platforms and they just boast about how great they are or how wonderful they are and they post all these kill pics and stuff and they, you know, then somebody says, hey man, you want to go blowing a contest? And they go, they say something stupid like, well, I mean, my judges bleed. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, you missed the point, man. It, it's not, even with the Main Street calling, people are like, well, that's not even what a duck does. But that's not the point of that contest. The point of that contest is the ability of the caller, and it's about control, and it's about flow, and it's, it's very, like, it's a rigid routine. It's, there's not a lot of leeway in that routine. It's how well you execute it. Whereas live duck is like, you know, freestyle on a duck call. And meat duck is a hunting scenario. And you've got a little more leniency one way or the other with what you can do in your routine. It's not about what sounds like a duck necessarily. It is about mastering your craft. You know? It I- gives you something to do. You practice on a duck call you practice blowing a goose call you will become a better caller you go hunt you learn to watch birds and work birds you'll become a better hunter so I agree man okay so this reference might not make any sense to anybody the competition calls and I might be way off base but to me I'm trying to look for like a sports reference of what like a competition is think of the dunk contest is a freaking competition. Those guys aren't doing those dunks in the freaking game. You know, they're going out there and trying to do the craziest, best stuff they can to show off the top of their ability. Obviously, you guys aren't going up there and throwing calls in between your legs. Like That's a completely different thing. But they're going out there and trying to show off the best of their ability. You're not going to do that in a game. We get that. It's about proving what you could do you know, on that specific tool. Yeah. What's your? I mean, those guys practice doing that, and there's a pile lot of technical thinking that went into it, and creativity and stuff like that. I mean, it's just it's one of those things where it's like I try and tell people, I'm like, it's not the relationships and friendships that I've made through contest calling have afforded me some of the best opportunities to go hunting and learn things about waterfowling. You know, than if I was just just a seasonal hunter you know everybody that loves to waterfowl hunting absolutely loves it and they're ate up with it but you know being a contest caller I mean I go hunt with Dan Getz and his uh, brother and dad down their place in Arkansas once a year I go up to Maryland um, once or twice a year and go hunt with Teddy and John Taylor and those guys and I, you know I've been invited to go other places and I've gotten to meet other people and talk to people and just learn so much more than my little piece of waterfowl hunting, you know? Yeah, yeah, I mean, man. The last few years, um, when Butch was alive and he couldn't go outside during worlds because it's so cold, we would go over to his house the night before the contest and the night after the contest and just sit there with Butch and um, 
he had all the old pictures up and stuff like that. And I'd ask him about all the pictures, and it was like, you know, people want to get in there and start, well, I don't know about this judge. I'm like, Butch, who's in that picture? And to listen to him tell me a story and tell me about the way Stuttgart in the area used to look, you know, 40, 50 years ago compared to what it does now was just, you know, if I won a contest call, I'd have no reason to be down there. I would never have learned any of that history or learned anything about that. You know? Yeah, man. And see, that's the good stuff that people just, you have to get involved to see, man. Like like you said, you just have to put your ego on check and freaking really just dive into it and to capture something like that that's that special. Right. And the thing with, like, contest calling, you said put your ego on check. Like, that's one way to get it in check. You know, get into contest calling and go drop, you know, $500 on a flight, two, $300 on a hotel, $100 in entry fees to get in there and get your teeth kicked in in the first round and be like, I just dropped a grand to come up here and blow a duck call for 90 seconds and now I'm going home. <laughs> well, it's, you know, the closest thing I could think of to relate it is, uh, I don't know if you've ever done like any uh, jujitsu or rolling or anything like that. No, but I'm a huge fan of it. I watch it all the time. Got you, bro. That is the quickest thing, or I guess the best way I could try to put it in my perspective of how to be humbled. <laughs> like you yeah. might think you're good, but there's somebody who's gonna come along and is just gonna beat the ever living crap out of you, and it's it's just a super super humbling experience, and that's you know just like calling. Where, you know, anybody on any given day at that top of the game can freaking beat anybody else. And, uh, you know, even the best in the world can get humbled from time to time. It's just part of the game. I I mean, it's, it is one of those things where the way it's set up is that, you know, I think John Taylor said it best one time. I was at his house, we were going goose hunting, and at John Taylor's house, he's got like all the deer mounts and he's, you know, hunting stuff around. He's got, I mean, he's got calls that, you know, people would pay thousands for seeing a drawer in there. And he's got all his plaques and trophies up on the wall. And uh, we always go in there and we're giving him shit about, well, you know, if I had been there, you know, all that stuff. But I think he said, I don't want to get wrong, but he said, there are a lot of second place trophies up there that I didn't deserve but there's a lot of first place trophies up there I didn't deserve either like just just because you're the best doesn't mean you're the best that day or just because you blew the best routine of your life doesn't mean the judges thought it was that great you know yeah so it's about it's it's about being able to take your licks and it's about being able to get up there and do it again not just get disqualified and say the hell with this I'm done it's about going up there and you know earn your spot and understanding that once you get in the game I mean you might spend a thousand dollars and come home empty handed but you might spend a thousand dollars and come home and be able to fly out to a contest the very next weekend just because of the money you won I mean it's and that's what keeps it exciting. That's why a lot of those guys, and you know, will tell you, you know, if 
you know, do it long enough, you know, you're always going to be nervous. If you're not nervous when you get up there on stage, then it's probably time to hang it up. <laughs> I think Hunter Graham said I, the exact same thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and, the, and the bottom line is, is that it's because you don't, you don't, just because you think it sounds good, you got five guys back there that got to think it sounds good. You know? Not only can you beat yourself, but another caller can beat you as well. So you're competing against yourself and another caller. It's, uh, it takes a lot of focus and, and, you know, but when you win, it's like the best feeling in the world. And I probably misquoted John Taylor. I'm sure he'll listen to this and he'll call me up and say, Lawrence, you co-signed son of a bitch. You got me wrong again. I know he's going to say it. But <laughs> Dude, how great of an, how great of an interview is freaking John Taylor. I, that, I walked away from that just – he had – I don't even think we talked about competition calling once. I think we talked about geese the whole time, and it was just – like I looked down at the clock and I was like, "Holy cow, man! We've uh, we've been doing this a minute." <laughs> well, and John Taylor's a killer, man. Don't don't. He's a very humble guy. I, I love him to death. I, I mean, but and I will say this: I I could probably accredit most of my goose hunting success to the things I've learned from John Taylor. And that's just talking to him and watching him and knowing him over the years. I've known him a long time. But actually going up there to sit in a blind with those guys, they're hunting a totally different bird. I mean, they're hunting geese where they winter. These birds aren't going anywhere else. I mean, they come down through Virginia, but that is the majority of the wintering population of the Atlantic flyaways ending up there. And so pressure management and not educating birds and working birds and doing different things and setting up differently, like... It's one of those things where you just go and you sit there and you just soak it in because you're going to learn a lot. Yeah, I it's mean the true hunter, man. I, he's a hunter. He's a hunter for sure. I you know. Uh, he uh, if it's in season, he'll hunt it. <laughs> well, he's it's the only not... guy I know that's ever eaten muskrat, but yeah, he'll hunt it. eat it. Yeah, no way, man. It, it he takes a very methodical like zen-like approach to you know hunting and the way that he studies birds and you know just gets out there i I believe it was we were talking about and he was like he spends two hours a day out at uh these different places from where he worked like it was close to he works at a prison correct yeah the the prison he used to work at was right there in quantico where he lived that's right and those birds were roost on the creek that ran right by the prison and he'd go up there and just sit and listen to those birds and watch them in their natural, you know, environment, not being hunted, not being pressured, and just watch them communicate and fly and work each other. And I mean, that that's the ultimate teacher right there. If you've got a spot like that, then you can go do that. I you agree, know? man. I agree. It's a, a very interesting thing. I got to get him back on here to talk more about it because, like I said, we freaking ran through an hour and 20 minutes and just, just scratched the surface. Um, tell me uh, what you think about these online contests, brother. I think it's pretty, it's interesting, right? So I judged um, the online live duck contest that Kyle did. Mm-hmm. And I want to say it was like 80, 80 I got my notes right here. So it was 83, I don't remember how many callers. It was something absurd 
high number that I wasn't expecting. So I think it's awesome in that if you have a contest with 80 participants in it, and it's a live duck calling contest, right? Mm-hmm. We, don't, we don't have that at the World Live Duck at Easton. So there's, and there was a bunch of guys it was their first contest, a lot of guys' first contest. So I think it is an awesome thing and Kyle's doing a great job, and Mike Eddie's doing a great job, and everybody involved in it's been absolutely amazing. Um, and when I was judging it, you know, Mike Eddie did a spreadsheet with all the names on it and everything like that, and all I had to do was just punch in the numbers, and he took care of everything else. And So the first couple contests, I think they worked out the kinks, and they're getting better and better. And just to see the number of new guys coming out, um, you know, and I'm going to go ahead and say this. There's a lot of guys from a live duck contest that have texted me and sent me messages about my notes. And I am not ignoring you. I apologize. I'm horrible about that stuff. I have been out of town and working my tail off. So if you have sent me a message, I promise you, send them to me again. I'm going to go back through next week or this week and get everybody the information. I apologize. That is bad on my part. But the contest in general, it was exciting to see all the really new guys come out and compete. And there was a lot of talent. Like, there were some really solid guys that I've never even heard of before. I'm like, God, why aren't they coming to Easton? You know? Yeah. Like, what rock have you been hiding under? Man, it's uh, it's done a lot to boost the interest, man. I, I really have been I excited think. to see. And I think that live duck, dude, is gonna be the uh it already what was the biggest contest last year i think teddy was saying there was like 70 something guys signed up for it like i think that is going to be the big push for uh you know calling here in the near future yeah i mean it's i have a love-hate relationship with a lot of duck i'm on the committee it's because i can't figure that contest out to save my life <laughs> but it's, I, i've heard uh, it's finicky I, Okay. I've heard it's like it's finicky because you never really know what to expect. You don't because so even with like a meat routine, right? You have a story you're trying to tell, like a song you're trying to sing, right? It's all mm-hmm. about who tells the story the best or who sings the song the best or whatever you want to compare it to. But with that live duck, it's like it's so the judges literally are sitting there going, "How realistic is this?" and you know, then you get into the really fine tunes of it. It's like, well, you hunt in the timber. So when you hear birds doing bird things in the timber, they sound different than a guy who hunts them on open water because they sound different. Well, you're hunting next to a roost and you're hearing them when they're roosting and you're hearing them when they're working. And it's like, it's like, okay, now we're overcomplicated. But you do have five completely different opinions back there with five judges that are trying to sound, you know, figure out who sounds the most like a live duck. I've judged the live goose and the wound goose. And judging the live goose is, I, I think judging the live goose is harder than judging the wound goose. Sometimes. Because it's like, you're listening to mistakes. Well, when you're judging a live goose, some of those guys make some really goosey sounds and it's kind of like, man, yeah, he's kind of floating that line there. I don't know. 
or not a mistake that you scratch the card, you need to hit that note. I mean, you can cover up some things there, but it's just everybody's approach is different. Like some guys make it sound like these are flying in and landing and then doing good stuff. And then you've got some guys that sound like these are on the ground doing their whole thing and then they get up and flying and leading. And it's like there's no structured routine there. So it becomes a very subjective, I mean, it's it's a hard contest to judge for sure. I, I don't ever want to judge the live duck. Period. <laughs> I yeah, I, I anything just, that's that subjective, man, it's just too open to scrutiny. But it is a very popular contest and it is a very well run contest. And I think um you know, it's one of those things where it's almost like it's got its own checks and balances where you'll see guys start to win contests, this live back contest, that people are almost kinda like trying to incorporate some of those things in it and then when that happens it starts to sound more and more like a routine and the contest will let you know real quick if you're I mean if your time on stage sounds too much like a routine there's certain judges that's going to be like not sound like too much like a routine well you got to have a routine when you get up there you got to have something to practice but you don't want it to sound too structured if that makes sense yeah yeah absolutely so the last thing you want to do is jump on and freaking copy last year's winner's routine because they're going to pick that out real quick. Yeah, and and it's just it's one of those things. But the online live dot calling contest, uh, uh, Logan Hancock said it best in one of his Facebook posts. Um, it was awesome to watch guys incorporate the environment they were in to try and make the sound more realistic. Like Mike Benjamin blowing on the edge of the marsh you know it sounded awesome with the call bouncing off the water you had guys standing in the woods you had guys you know turning away from the mic and turning towards the mic sounding like two different ducks I mean it added a whole other dimension to the contest um, that I thought was pretty amazing as well and, and in, in some cases it added a whole other dimension of realism to it as well like uh, Chris Betcher um Blue his and I, I, I could tell and I know Chris that he thought it out like he went out there and found a spot that he was going to blow and it was going to sound the best into the trees and it's just you know I, I like the online contest I don't think you'll ever have regionals or world champion I mean you might have an online world championship but you would never have like I don't think you'll ever see Eastern or Stuttgart or maybe an online thing with this pandemic. I just think it'd be impossible, but I am a big fan of what those guys are doing. I think it's uh, doing nothing but good things because, you know, when I started contest calling back in, the first time I went to Stuttgart was in 2007. I had been going for a couple of years prior to that. But my first time in Stuttgart, I mean, ESPN was there photographing contestants I mean it was just it was insane and it's still a big deal but it's just not you don't see the I guess the general public finding as much interest in it it's not as much fanfare associated with it so my thought man is there's just not enough press I think what what Kyle is doing with all the contests and all you guys who are judging and helping put these things together 
trust me, uh, trying to figure out this contest, I've had so many hour-long conversations with guys uh, about how to make my own little thing better and different ideas and stuff like that. I think getting new people involved, new people aware, new guys seeing it is going to do nothing but help. I think it's a very entertaining thing. It's just hard for people who show up only for Stuttgart to get in, to have any clue of what contest calling is. You know, the, they don't know what's going on. They don't know. I've said it with other guys, you know, it's exciting when you watch guys at like, you know, say Memphis, what is what, six weeks before Stuttgart? And you see, yes. you know, guys that finish in the top five of that. And it's like, you know, and you find out they're all five in the last round of Stuttgart. And you're like, holy cow, you know, this is exciting. He had him here and, it it can be exciting. It's just that uh, I think guys don't uh, don't keep up with it enough. They just tune in for that one contest a year, and they're just like, "Well, ducks don't sound like that. This is stupid." <laughs> it's like it, it's exciting. Yeah. You just have to understand it. I agree one hundred percent. I think there is somewhat of a lack of knowledge as to what goes into it. Plus, it's kind of like you know. I mean, I guess I've been doing a lot of, I've got, I'm like, I'm a fan of certain callers and their styles and what they do. Like, I'm a, like, I'm a, I'm a fan of contest calling, but there's certain callers that I'm a fan of. Like, I love to hear them, you know, compete. I like going back and watching old videos and hearing them do stuff. And I don't know what it is, man, but it's like, I wish there was more of like a, you know how people get really amped up about their favorite football team or their favorite college, you know? Right. Like football, like, I wish there was more of a, a fan base that, like, followed people. And I wish, like you said, I wish there was more media coverage. Like, I think when ESPN did it, they covered it as an event, as, and it kind of tied in with the great outdoor games back in the day. But they had a thing called the Dunk Tour. And it kind of listed all the contests and who won what contest and had the world's results and had a bunch of pictures of the guys. My Facebook profile is the is an ESPN picture. I mean, it's just, I thought that was so cool going into that. I just wish there was a way to create a fan base around contest calling people to follow certain contestants, you know. I, I think there is, it. man. I can tell you from when I was doing the live streams and, like, the little profiles and interviews, you know, in the written format, it was getting pretty big response, and every contest that I streamed got bigger and bigger. You know, every uh, the turnout for every contest that was getting streamed was getting bigger and bigger. There was excitement for it, and you would see comments on the live stream, uh, hey, is this person gone here? You know, like all these different things, and yeah. people were wanting to know. I think it's possible. I just think the amount of time that it would take somebody, you know, I can speak to it just because I've done it in a very small scale, is just too much. It would be a full-time gig for somebody to uh, just simply travel around and do that type of stuff. I was doing it in my downtime, and it took every waking minute I have to try to keep up with it. Yeah, I remember seeing you in contest, and it was like, where'd Chris go? You're like, oh, he left. I'd be like, oh, literally, you drove out there to film a contest, and he was over with. You're like, all right, I gotta go back and do something, you know? Yeah. You had your life again. So I can imagine how time consuming it was. And, you know, it, it it's one of those things that was just, like you said, somebody's gotta dedicate 
and like a full time gig to it, and it's, it's hard for anybody to do. But I think the online contest, I'm hoping you'll see an uptick with guys. You know, the biggest thing is is that um, you either love it or you hate it. But if you if you go out and compete the first time and you don't win, that's not the end of the world. You know, it's a duck calling contest at the end of the day, but you start meeting people and getting advice and getting help from the right people, you'll get there. You know, which I used to say, the, the first step is getting your ticket to Stuttgart. The next step is getting out of the first round. He said, focus on it one routine at a time, one contest at a time. You know, then you start being more and more consistent. You start getting meeting more people, getting more resources, more advice, and then the doors start opening up. I mean, you get opportunities to hunt with guys. You get, you know, to do cool stuff like this podcast. And I mean, it's just, I wish there was more people that didn't give up so quickly. I agree, brother, and I hope, uh, I hope that it helps out. I, uh, you, you know, I, I challenge you to. Uh, get on the the blog post once every two weeks put put an hour to it and get back on there and start cranking those things out man because it only helps all of you guys out and uh hopefully not take up too much time out of your life but uh man yeah, I, with this pandemic and everything going on i mean sometimes i find myself in nothing but time <laughs> right exactly so brother I appreciate it. It has been a heck of a time. It's been uh, long overdue, and man, I, I'm glad to get to sit down with you and share little stories and some feedback on contests and stuff like that, man. Anytime, man. I really uh, appreciate you having me on and giving me an opportunity, man. I think it was, it was a lot of fun. I really thank you a whole lot. Absolutely, buddy. It was, a, it was an honor on my end, bud. All right, man. All right, buddy. You take care of yourself, and you have a good night. You too. Have a great one. All right, buddy. Take care. Bye. Bye. All right, guys. Lawrence Mock. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Hopefully you get on there and check out some of those online contests. Guys are working way too hard for nobody to check it out, and it sounds like people have been checking the heck out of them out. So, uh, yeah. Hope you enjoy it. Share it. Like it. Do all that good stuff. Check out the BTBN Head to Head Contest. We're going to be doing some more live videos coming up with it. Have a good one.